calm. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then the, then the Zen like calm disappears. The last two days I was actually doing pretty good. And I don't know what happened today where it's like, I woke up and maybe just the news was just more than I could handle. So. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian with a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, or as in the old seminary days, we used to term it theological reflection. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have uh, my friend Brad Raley on to have a discussion. It's, well, I should say, I thought about calling it a Heinz 57 podcast. I thought about calling it Potpourri, uh, but, re- but really there is a thread that runs through our conversation. It begins with uh, you know, a personal experience of this pandemic and then ranges through his um, vocation as a historian, um, history teacher, professor, academic, uh, also a, a musical artist and uh, produces, well, produces probably not the correct word, entertains a lot of home shows uh, at his house there in Colorado. So I thought uh, it'd be important because we are uh, learning that history does matter. My friends over at uh, Ryan and Phillips uh, Conversation Rules have a segment that is uh, why it matters or history has its eyes on you, I think, is its uh, technical description. And here we are in a historical moment. Of course, everyone is, but we are really wanting to see, are we going to experience this really as tragedy or in the future as farce? And so I hope you enjoyed our wide-ranging conversation where we talk about the pandemic, we talk about our personal experience of it, the environment, myths, and a whole lot more. So um, hopefully it'll stir some questions with you and within you. And as always, uh, you can always send us a message. You can uh, pose a question. But uh, as helpful, it would be for you to leave a rating in iTunes. A uh, review would even be fantastic. So log in and, and give us a four or five stars. Give us a, a rating. It helps us continue to get found on the interwebs. You can subscribe in your favorite podcatcher, whether that's the iTunes podcast app, or one of my favorites is Overcast. Whatever it is, we invite you to do just that. So here's my conversation with Brad Raley. Uh, uh, so this is good, though. It's good for me to kind of, you know, have to good, get off good. the Twitter feed for a bit. And, you know, yes, yes. Yeah, I uh, I have to tell my, uh, my oldest, who rightly is a bit nervous, she has asthma, her, her son nine-year-old has asthma, okay. pretty bad case. Kimberly is my oldest. Kimberly, so, okay. Kimberly, Kimberly has asthma. Her son Cohen has, has asthma. He was born premature, so he sometimes has to even be on steroids. His asthma gets so bad. So she's she's been just like a basket. You know, she'll read something. She'll see something. So I have to say, okay, time to get off. Time to turn TV off for a little bit. Time to get off Facebook or Twitter and just, just breathe for a second. It's hard not to, though. I mean, you know, when you've got – you're trying to get the latest and you're trying to get the most up-to-date information. Yeah. You're not sure who to trust. It's just yeah. hard not to be checking it all the time. Yeah. And of course our, you know, we're sitting here with not a lot of other things to do. 
uh, or having to force ourselves to find other things to do. Yes. Um, and so, you know, the easiest thing, the low hanging fruit is to check the news right. and see, you know, what the orange guy has done or what latest news is or something, you know, and it's, right. it's kind right. of addictive and at least it feeds some, something, you know, even, right. if, even if it's not good for you, it's not what you want to do, but. Right. Yeah. So are, so are you, um, are you doing classes online now? Yeah. And that's actually one of the frustrations. It's, it's only one class that I'm teaching right now. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, we, I'm completely online. Um, my students have, I'm not exactly sure what's happening. They turned in, they had an assignment that was due first part of the week, turned that in. I've got discussion boards set up for them. I'm seeing nothing. Oh, wow. And, you know, so we'll see. I'm going to have to follow up. I mean, I'm also mindful that for some of them, I mean, this could be existential for them. I mean, this could be, you know, that they've lost their employment or they're, you know, so I don't exactly know where they are. And, um, I may try to get them all to do something like this at least once if they have that ability, just so I can check in and see how they're doing and stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's also weird. I've taught online many times, but this is the weirdest one in the sense that, you know, the semester was half done and then all of a sudden we have to switch gears completely. So I don't have a lot of expectations as to how that's going to work out. And I just sort of have to hope that they can get something out of this and Mm -hmm. we can all kind of get through this mess and, you know, yeah, that's yeah, what's going to be interesting about um, uh, the public schools here. You know, they 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 like two thirds into this semester, and now they've got to try to figure out how to do some sort of online combination with print materials that they're going to mail out, or they're going to have to go to school and pick up. And I agree. I mean, the truth of the matter is, if it can be something that they can kind of have some means to retain what they have getting something new with the distractions is going to be awful difficult for any child yeah. I think yeah well then you know and then I think about those those friends I'm sure you have a lot of friends who are teachers too and many of them with kids and so they are they're in this situation of having to manage their kids and supposed to be teaching remotely at the same time that's yeah. you know depending on those kids I mean the age of those kids right. I imagine that's an incredible challenge um, you know and I have a friend from Norman whose son, has such anxiety. He was in tears trying to do some of this video stuff with some mm-hmm. of these teachers, you know, and then it's something I wouldn't even think about. I mean, it is right. a little nerve wracking in the sense that, you know, it's, I have to make sure I have clothes on that kind of stuff, you know, <laughs> right. but, but right. it's, you know, it's not like it's a, it's a big deal, but for, for some of these kids, it's a, you've thrown them into the, into the deep end sort of. And, Oh yeah. Um, and then of course you add in all the trauma that they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, However, well, parents are doing to manage that. I mean, it's going to be trauma. There's no way around this. Just scary. Yeah. They can't talk to their friend or they can't see their friends, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's a lot to manage. It is. And then, and then, you know, you, you, I mean, we, we share some, you know, particular visions and commitments that this also exposes the realities that there are a lot of families who don't have the tools that now they're expected to have. And, and then, you know, who's going to, who's going to assist them? Is it the school going to assist them? Is it, is it the local um, uh, broadband provider? You know, how's that going to get meted out? And, and so, you know, I've, 
I've got a friend that's the tech guy from Middell, and he says, this is the sort of thing that immediately points up who has and who doesn't in our district. 14,000 yeah. students, you know, 70% free and reduced lunch. Who, I mean, if you're, if you're in that boat, you probably aren't paying $100 a month for a gig service, right. you know. Right. So, so now they're squarely disadvantaged. So they've gone strictly to uh, print. So they'll, they'll come up to school, pick their stuff up Monday, bring their stuff back Friday. Wow. It's, it's an inconvenience, but, you know, it's the only way to even out the playing field, you know. Right. Uh, otherwise, someone, some student's going to be squarely disadvantaged if they can't get their Chromebook uh, connected because they're only used to using it at school. Right, and, and you just mentioned the other component of that, how many of those kids are reliant on that free or reduced lunch for a big, big part of their nutrition. Um, I know that's something people are talking about nationally. So it's not clearly just Oklahoma or Colorado or anything like that. Right. It's clearly an issue. And, and it, it's one of those that just, I mean, that's the thing about this pandemic. It seems to have revealed things that were right in front of our face the whole time. I mean, that issue that you just, most of those issues we just talked about were there. I mean, that, it wasn't like they just all of a sudden came out of nowhere. Right. But all of a sudden now those of us who, you know, blithely stream our Netflix and, you know, do our thing, uh, you know, and, and uh, can, we can work from home because it's not that much different than what, you know, for me uh, and, and actually my wife, she's downstairs, she's set up. It's, it's a fairly easy, it's an emotional transition for her, but in terms of actually doing the work she needs to do, hmm. it's an easy one to do. And yet, you know, there are so many people who clearly can't do that and never could do that. Um, and that's the thing about this. I think every, it seems like almost every day, every conversation with somebody, somebody will point out an interconnection uh, within the economy or society that I hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. You know, like, well, it, it's always been there. Well, right. You know, I just didn't, didn't think about it. And that's, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, one other angle, you know, is, is the uh, our wage earner at, you know, places we take for granted who can't, take off. Right. You know, and so no wonder we're seeing skyrocketing unemployment, you know, right. because they are going to have to have the means yeah. to make up for what's been lost. You know, I I uh, I've hit three local restaurants to help put together meals for students for lunch this week. Of course they're all shuttered, you know, they're doing just curbside carry out. They've laid off to skeletal staff. Right. And those people they've laid off is not because they wanted to, you know, not because they're just greedy, greedy owners. It's, it's that, or everybody goes under, you know, and so you, they hope they can weather it and then hire the folks back. But in the meantime, like you said, it's always been there, yeah. but we haven't seen the consequences in this way. It's just been really more talking heads, you know, Oh, we, uh, we do we need to raise the minimum wage? You know, that, that those sorts of things become right. much more present to, folks needs and reality. So yeah, it's, it's every day, every day, something. Yeah, I agree. Well, I thought, you know, uh, th- this is good. So um, if I were interviewing you, which I am, uh, so tell me what got, what got your, um, uh, oh, um, what got your interest in history? I mean, what, what was it? What was, what was it that, so here you are, you know, student, you know, making it to high school, college, and 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 uh, graduate work. What was it? What was it about history? It's it's. Um, 
I'm not sure this is a very uh, inspirational story um, in the sense that, so I started, when I started college in the early 80s, all of my friends were studying business. That was the hot craze, you know, so my best friend from high school, his dad was in the accounting department. Um, he got into the business school. I applied for business, even though I have no idea why I did that. But again, everybody was doing it, you know? Right, right. Um, and so I applied, didn't get in. Both my dad and my oldest brother had degrees in ag business. My dad was an extension agent. And so, okay. you know, I come from that kind of agricultural background. So I thought, okay, well, I'll do ag business. Um, and I hated every single class I ever took. I mean, it was just terrible. It was, it was all, it, it all fed into my weakest points. You know, there was a lot of math, there was <laughs> chemistry, there was all this stuff. I still remember the economics class I took. It was an ag econ course and there were parts of it that were interesting, but it was like nine o'clock in the morning in a theater like classroom mm-hmm. where the, the professor turned the lights down to show the slides. And I mean, he might as well just given me a, a you know, a cup of cocoa and told me. <laughs> to, so Along the way, I kept taking history classes because for whatever reason, I'd always found that interesting. And there was some point in my college career where I was like, why am I doing this? Why don't I do the thing I'm actually good at? Mm-hmm. So I did it. My dad wasn't happy about that um, at the time. Um, so I, I, I got my uh, undergraduate in history. And then by that time, I had moved to Houston and, and got married and, and um uh, and so I was looking at doing uh, secondary education. Uh, I'd taken some education classes. Um, and so I talked to somebody at University of Houston is where I did my, uh, finished my undergraduate degree and then did my master's degree. And I talked to somebody in the, I think it was, must've been in the ed program. And she recommended, she said, look, you might as well just get a master's in history and then do your teaching certification as opposed to doing a teaching, you know, and I thought, okay, well, that makes sense. And so I applied for a master's degree and, you know, and did that and found that I loved it. I mean, I was, I, you know, I, I, those kind of seminar settings were just, they were built for me. You know, it was, it was intellectual arguing with people. That was, that, that was, that was fun. I mean, the, the solitary research and writing part, that's, that was always the hard part for me, which is probably why I'm not, you know, someplace doing that more. Um, and then I, you know, and then I started found myself enjoying uh, environmental history. And then I ended up at University of Oklahoma to do a PhD in environmental history with a guy, my PhD advisor, who wasn't terribly helpful, but uh, learned a lot along the way. Um, I don't know. I mean, that's, 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 that's yeah. how it ended up. You know, it was more kind of happenstance. I sort of followed yeah. the path of, I don't want to say least resistance, but I did follow that path of what kind of work for me, you know? Yeah. So if you were going to help uh, a lay person who, you know, has a hard enough time, you know, ciphering nuance in uh, ag econ, for instance, and <laughs> he finds out that he finds out that uh, someone did a PhD in environmental history, like what would be the short description that someone would understand kind of the particular narrowing of a broad field that would be you know, in, environmental that we're not talking sociologically environmental. We're talking about the natural you know, world. The yeah. natural world, yeah. Yeah, it's it's uh, in some ways a real crossover with with elements of geography that do a similar kind of thing. Um, 
but it really is looking at that interplay between humans and the environment. And it's, it's a back and forth and, you know, it's kind of a Hegelian kind of thing because, you know, we do things to nature and then it responds back and then we have to figure out how to process that. So, I mean, environmental history is a fairly broad field. I mean, there are some that's much more intellectual about the ideas about nature. That was some of the stuff I actually enjoyed reading more than I, I never did any research in it, but at changing concepts about nature. That's really a fascinating kind of discussion, you know, where people are, their perceptions of what nature is out there and as opposed to the reality and how they come to conclusions about that, you know, and then of course then it feeds into actual decision-making, you know, which that's the, always the case. So it really is that back and forth between nature and humans. So. Yeah. And, and so in, in any, in any sort of historical kind of venture, you're, you are looking for the, whether anybody wants to admit it or not, you're looking for the intellectual roots that resulted in the decisions that, that human beings made at a given point in time. So in, yeah. in a sense, it's really um, maybe a particular vein of intellectual history. Is that fair? Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, it is in, in, because the ideas are obviously important, but then it also gets into, into community history, how communities build and, and uh, address things like, so one of my friends actually, um, I posted on Facebook, so check it out. Uh, he's a PhD from OU who uh, now is at uh, um, in Long Island, Paul Kelton. He and I were in grad school together and he's written two books on on pandemics. Uh, he wrote on smallpox and how uh, Indian tribes responded. Um, and then I guess his second book, which I haven't read, is also on something to do with Indians and disease. And right now he's doing a project which is fascinating and has some kind of um, carryovers here on a cholera epidemic in the 1830s that especially impacts slaves, Irish workers, and Indians. And so Paul is trying to you know, kind of look at that. So he's, he's looking at not only the intellectual side of it, what did they understand about the disease, which was they were almost completely wrong. I mean, they assumed, they assumed it came from certain things Mm -hmm. than it actually did. Um, And then how, how communities start to respond to that and figure out. And some of that is, I mean, this is an interesting thing is, you know, to, to to compare to coronavirus, we know exactly what it is. We, Mm -hmm. despite, despite the orange man saying, we don't know, we, we know, we know exactly, you know, we, for months, we've seen the little image of what that, that's what this looks mm-hmm. like. So compared to either the flu epidemic of, of 1918 or the cholera epidemic of the 1830s, we have a, that, that part of it is, is pretty clear. Mm-hmm. But then the other social and economic constructs that are behind it are shockingly similar. Like he was just, I was watching um, on this, it was a, a video, a YouTube lecture he did the other night. And he was talking about that a lot of Irish workers were working on the Erie Canal and some of the other canals, some of them were never completed. Um, and they were stricken by the virus a lot because that's where a lot of the, uh, you know, because cholera is, is in bad sanitation, bad, you know, it's passed through the water system. Um, but the people who ran the canals kept downplaying how bad it was and kept saying, well, this is just about them making bad decisions. You know, there were some really, it's like, we're like, whoa, uh, where have we heard that before? You know, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah. I don't know if I well, answered your question. No, yeah, you did. <laughs> I, and I think, I think, I think from there, uh, what would be, um, um, I mean, what would be interesting, you know, I think for someone where I, I minored in history, so I, I, I was, 
I haven't done enough with it because of what I do. I have, I didn't stay with it as much as I, I would like to, but it was, it was a, a big interest. So what I, I kind of latched onto was I had a professor at uh, OBU that um, he taught intellectual history and, and, and that, and that, that really kind of, you know, nabbed me. So those are the, the sorts of things that I tend to kind of trail off in when, you know, whatever issue comes up, what's the underpinning, what's the, what's the ideas behind it. And, right. and I would think that, that in a, in a, um, in, in an, a consideration in environmental history would be when you talk about how communities respond, you would be able to get underneath or, or you'd have the, the tools to get underneath um, say particular social movements that were in response to anything that were happened to be related to um particular geography. So, I mean, I would say, I would think anyway, so this is my conjecture here, you can correct me, but I would say that there would have been some sort of environmental history working in the Civil War in terms of where we're talking about uh, industrialization was taking root first, where your, your agricultural roots were, were remaining, the needs of the workforce playing into sort of the racial um, undertones that, you know, carried, carried some of the divisiveness. And I may be stretching a little bit. I'm trying to look to see that it wouldn't just be about the interplay between nature and humans. You're, you're looking for what are we doing about that as well? I mean, you're, what what are the, what what are the things that, and then the lessons you learn from it, that's the other part of history that I think people miss. And frankly, I think people are trying to be, um, Oh, the nice way. Um, um, we're trying to be uh, led to believe that history doesn't matter. That yeah. what was said six months ago doesn't matter because really what matters is what I'm saying today. Right. Right. But these things have consequence. Right. So in history, you know, these movements um, and such, they have, they have, like you said a while ago, your friend who wrote the book on pandemics, it's where have we heard this before? The, the, yeah. they, these have, you know, what was it? Um, it's always attributed to um, uh, Marx, but I don't think Marx originated it. But, uh, you know, history repeats itself self first as um, tragedy, then yeah. as farce. You know, yeah. seems to be we're living in a constant farce from time to time. Right, if we right. were, pay- if we had, and we might have been helped if we paid attention historically. Right. So, yeah. what do you, no, I mean, how, how would you help someone kind of work? You know, if you're going to suggest in in the in the in the current events moment, you know, what are some of the history we should be paying attention to? Yeah, so because you know, when we started this conversation about doing this interview, it made me think a little bit about the historical lessons or things that we've missed here. And um, I'm influenced by a lot of smart people that I'm reading. I'm reading uh, some Rebecca Solnit right now. I don't know if you've read Rebecca. Um, She's a historian, activist, uh, great writer, for one thing, but she wrote a book called Paradise Built in Hell, which is about community responses to disasters. Wow. Um, and she's arguing um, really that a lot, speaking you, and I was thinking about this when you said ideas matter and they have, they have effects. And she said she is convinced that we are taught um, both probably theologically, and then, of course, uh, politically, we are taught that humankind is basically awful, you know, that if, if when everything breaks down, it's Lord of the Flies, you know, and she says, 
And the reason she says that idea matters is that, for example, she points to Katrina, where you had police forces actually responding to poor people as if they were marauders. When she said the evidence is really the contrary, that they were trying to, um, they were in their own way responding to their neighbor, trying to help. And so, I mean, it's an interesting, and I've, I've been thinking about how this, because my friend Paul in, in his little lecture says it, uh, in one of the questions, he said, he has had students come up to him and say, why don't you talk about good things more? And he said, well, because I think the tragedies actually, we learn more from them. Um, and I've been thinking about that because I think, I think that some of what we are, I'm rambling here a little bit, but I think, I think I'll get there, um, is sometimes I think, I think he's right. Success can be the absolute worst teacher in the world. I mean, it's interesting how, you know, I mean, the, the, like the 2009 response that Obama did to the H1N1 wasn't perfect, but it was good. It was, it was very good to the point that I remember having a conservative friend tell me this was a complete overreaction. I can't believe they overreacted about this virus. And at the time I had been reading enough on this. I was like, no, 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 that's, you know, same thing that people had. If we step into Y2K, you know, different Mm -hmm. kind of threat. Uh, my my wife was heavily involved in 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 doing that, and she you know and afterwards people said, "What were we so worried about?" Well, that was because we had months and months of people actually recoding and 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 dealing with this stuff, and so sometimes history and so that the ease at which we went through that meant that the next time uh, a uh, an IT person says, "Well, we got an upcoming threat here," you can hear a lot of people saying, "Well, yeah, you said that about Y two K, and look at nothing happened." And I think that was a little bit of what happened with uh, 2009. Um, the other part of that I was thinking about, by the way, is that when we've been talking about this virus, we have mostly compared it to, sorry, I have a dog that's uh, right. bothering me. She, I think she thinks something's wrong. Um, we often gravitate to comparing to other ep- epidemics or pandemics. And then there's a natural reason for that. And there's every, there's really good reasons to do so. Um, but this smart friend I've been reading on Twitter wrote an article uh, really saying that the, the, the analog here is the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a, as a destructive force, because almost all those other kinds of natural disasters, um, you know, Katrina, uh, the tsunami, I mean, absolute devastating, massive, you know. But, you know, I remember Katrina, I was in Oklahoma. Uh, and uh, I was watching from afar and I was horrified and yet completely comfortable in my home. You know, I, I was, whereas with the depression, now the Dust Bowl didn't affect everybody, you know, but the depression did. And so everybody in society was being forced to reassess some of their assumptions about the way things functioned. And I'm assuming that's the way it was with the 1918 flu. And that was one of the things I realized I have a real lack in my, if I was still doing research, that'd probably be an area I would, I would want to look at is, is not, you know, we know about the flu. We know it came in three different waves and, you know, different stuff like that. But what I don't know is what kind of, what it made people change, you know, except for the initial social distancing and the fear and all that kind of stuff. Had, did they actually restructure social networks or or institutions or something like that all around that response because i think that's what we're kind of seeing now is we're seeing this um the old tools that 
Again, this is back to our the beginning of our conversation. The old tools may not have been working as well as we thought they were. And maybe my privilege allowed me to just completely ignore that because I could get along with it. But right now, it doesn't, my privilege helps. I mean, it absolutely, I have a privilege and I'm not going to deny that, but I can no longer not see it. I can't see right. the problem, you know, and so the, it's ripped that off. And I think the Great Depression did that to American society. And that's how you got the New Deal. And you got all these institutions that came out of that to address poverty. Some of it was environmental, um, you know, and so I'm wondering if that isn't, I'm, I'm indebted to this uh, Emily. She's a librarian in, in Chicago who also is a freelance writer. She's the one that made this connection. I thought, you know, that's, that's a really valid one to think about. And uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I, I do think, you know, like, like you said, I mean, we, we've got, we have been operating under the assumption that our um, depressing wages uh, is better for the economy. Uh, you're going to get more, and, and yes, and people will have a built-in desire to work their way up the ladder and all that you know, to acquire stuff. And that's the way this should work. Um, that clearly isn't going to work now. I mean, at some point it may, we may get back to some, some form of that, but then we need to maybe look back and go, I was thinking about this the other day, walking my dogs. Um, I, I read somewhere and I can't remember, it's in a book on, on, on hunger. Um, Place at the Table. I don't know if you've read that. It came out a couple of years. There was a documentary. It was about, it was about essentially about hunger in America or kind of food insecurity in America. Um, and in there, there's a shocking statistic um, about how many food pantries there were in like 1980. And there's like a handful. Right. Because they really weren't that needed. I mean, the war on poverty for all of its problems and everything, people were actually getting access to nutrition. And you look at it now, every county has at least one. Mm -hmm. um, and they're constantly battling, you know, so it's that kind of thing that was there. That was there well before this pandemic, you know, so these, there's been some structuring and restructuring that we were able to kind of limp along with perhaps and for some of us it was it, it made they made a lot of people a lot of money you know and that's that's the other part of it um now i can't remember exactly what you asked me but no that's good <laughs> well i mean i you know we're trying to we're trying to see how how why it matters why history matters and, and what what we learn from it what um uh how we avoid the farce yeah. and so when you when, when you you kind of describing those very different um, aspects um, and then moving toward, okay, what are we learning now? You know, I, I know that a number of people who, you know, would fit the category of privileged have, you know, have confessed, man, everything about my life is changing. Uh. And, and I, I don't think they say that flippantly. I, I think they've, they've realized that there are some luxuries that they've enjoyed that given the circumstances, mm -hmm that their decisions are having on other people. Right. Um, they've made some wholesale changes um, as, as a result. Uh, that their changes is going to have a massive singular impact? You know, probably not. But collectively, when we're all making some of those, then you have, you have the moment where what's been revealed can get addressed. You know, yeah. if we've been limping along, if we've been, if, if we've kind of had, 
uh, it not drawn to our attention. And now all of a sudden you've got this thing that's so ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's affecting everybody. It's in, in 150 plus countries. You know, it's, we're just waiting on, um, I don't know if you saw it, but was it, uh, they just found the first case in, in the largest slum in Mumbai. So yeah. that, I mean, we're talking, we're talking, that's, that's just a disaster waiting, you know, to increase. And, uh, uh, Florida, uh, New Orleans, you know, we, we could go on. So the question will be when someone's writing after the fact year 10, you know, what are the things that we restructured, reorganized, or did we just decide to limp out of it and carry on? Right. That's when, you know, um, all the claims of what we value become empty. If, if we haven't made any sort of structural adjustments, adaptations, reorganization, whatever, you know, uh, way we want to describe it. And, and and that's where, you know, one of the, one of the guys I read, um, uh, Slavoj Žižek has a, uh, uh, an illustration of, uh, um, caffeine-free diet Coke. And so he actually takes a, you know, a metaphorical walk from, you know, um, Coca-Cola with caffeine in it, and then just walks it through time to where by the time you get caffeine-free diet Coke, you actually have nothing. Right. But you, but you keep saying it's Coke, you know? So, <laughs> so when, yes. so if we're not careful, we'll keep talking about the things we value we'll keep adding to the thing that we say we value. And in the end, we really still don't have anything. In other words, these events, these right. um, uh, 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 tragedies or these catastrophes or these pandemics, whatever gets the uh, our overall attention will have really proven nothing. You know, yeah. if, if there isn't something that, you know, works its way out from us to say, how's the community going to respond to it? Yeah, you know, I, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about the frog in the water. You know, that, oh yeah, that, oh yeah, is what happens. And I was, I was thinking just one example of that was the 1980s. Um, you had two things happen. We had a lot of stuff happen, but two things happened that actually uh, helped change our economy, um, but not necessarily in a good way. Um, one was, of course, the decline in wages. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the attacks on unions, all that kind of stuff. At the same time, you had the explosion of consumer debt and consumer credit, mm-hmm. to put it in a nicer way. Mm-hmm. And so what you had is people in the 80s and 90s continued to consume as their parents had because they could. They could still buy the stuff. They could buy the cars and the houses and stuff like that. But they did it much more in debt than, they, than their parents and grandparents had done. But looking back at it from the big picture, it looks like continuity. And from, you know, from friends I grew up with, that was exactly, they were living the life that their parents had lived. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they weren't asked to look at that, then, you know, they never saw that. In fact, they'd been all this erosion of things that their parents and grandparents had actually benefited from in some form or another. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that revealing values part is, is, I think you'll really enjoy Solnit, by the way. She's, uh, because I think she really addresses a lot of those kind of, of issues, but I, I think you're exactly right. The, this has an opportunity. This and it's always so. Um, I don't think I'm a pessimist, but but I'm also mindful that I, I certainly never want to look at something where we're looking at a mounting death hole, as you said, and we're still waiting for it to hit. 
um, and say, well, let's look on the bright side, <laughs> you know. Um, but I am struck by, and Solnit's one of these people, uh, uh, one of my clients is a, is a singer-songwriter from Canada, and, and I had a phone conversation with her the other day, and she's so thoughtful. I mean, she's in her 20s, and she's a, an amazing artist. And she's like, you know, there's uh, the earth is breathing. The earth is taking a little bit of a respite. You know, we're seeing a decline in pollution. We're seeing, um, again, nobody wants all these people to get sick or anything like that. But there are elements here that allow us to maybe, as you said, review what we really value and what we care about. And then the question is going to be, do we have the political will or do we have the political understanding? Because that's one of the things that you're describing. And, and even in my scenario there. If, if I talk to a lot of my friends that grew up at the same time, they might disagree with my conclusions about that change in the economic thing because their value system is predicated on individualism. Mm -hmm. That's the other thing, by the way, that I can't keep coming back to, that the pandemic doesn't care about your individualism mm -hmm. and how that such an important value in American society, that belief in individualism is now... Uh, well, I mean, and again, there's the privilege. It's 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 dangerous. It's dangerous mm -hmm. to us, and there have been many cases where that individualism has been dangerous to us. Mm -hmm. But here, it's very just like in your face, like those individuals who are saying, "Oh, I, you can't tell me to not go to spring break, and you can't tell me to go," to, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think I, you know, I think that would be another fascinating um, way to kind of work through. Um, an environmental history, because I would see that um, in in a more collective understanding, um, you'd probably be able to uh, have a lot of anecdotal uh, illustrations where, in th those moments when the when there was a greater emphasis on the collective over against the individual, the responses were markedly different. Right. Whether whether it was a pandemic or whether it was an, an economic crisis, right. um, and or I and I, what's that? Yeah. Or yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I th so I think that in 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 that way, you know, one of the if anybody can have hopes on the other side of this might be that uh, we moderate that individualism because what's really happening now with like what we're doing and really what countless people are doing now everywhere because they're sheltering at home in most places. Um, they're trying to find that connection. They're trying to find that, you know, that, that uh, um, uh, some sort of commonness that draws together, even if it is technologically uh, uh, mediated, it still is uh, a return to a, a realization that, you know, um, it wasn't supposed to just be me and my, you know, my micro family on a, couple of acres out in the middle of, you know, some ex rural area, not wanting to be bothered. Uh, you know, I want to be bothered. I mean, for crying out loud, all of us want to be bothered. Even the introverts want to be bothered. You know, I want something, you know, so uh, I, I think that's, you know, that, that may be a, a hope that when we talk about restructure or, you know, what, what the social norms or the social adjustments we'll make that there'll be a, a greater value, which then I think might lead to, um, I don't know if I, I don't know if it'd be a return or rediscovery of the value of your neighbor in a way that, that we've kind of lost that, that, you know, now we're told to check on our neighbors. Why are we have, to, why do we have to be told to check on our neighbors? I mean, listen, if, if, 
if a major, uh, that's not right. If a good number of people claiming to be Christian have to be told to care for their neighbor, our ideas, our ideals are empty uh, until they're revealed that way, you know? And so, so, so hopefully, so hopefully kind of the rollout from that would be that, that, you know, maybe there is a greater stock taken in our neighbor rather than, you know, they're bothering me. Yeah, and that's that's one of the Solnit's points. Uh, I I first, I mean, I've read some of her stuff before, but uh, uh, are you a podcast guy? I mean, listening, not yeah, making. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. And I'm I'm new to it, but uh, yeah. uh, on being uh, Krista. Oh Tippett, yeah, yeah, Krista Tippett. She did, she did an interview with Solnit in 2016, okay. and there she kind of outlines a lot of that stuff that I was talking about from that book. Uh, but one thing she said in there is, again, we've been kind of taught this kind of we're all in we're, um, I mean, I, not trying to, I mean, you know where my politics are. And, and but, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it, it, you know, one of my biggest beefs with the NRA and the gun thing is, is not so much that I hate guns, although I'm not fond of them and I don't have any. Um, it's this kind of message that says you can't trust people you need to not rely on a community at all or be connected to that community. You need to have a gun so you can actually take care of business yourself. That's, that needs to be for everybody, not just for some people where that might make sense, where they're at training, whatever. And Rebecca says, I think in that, in that podcast, she's like, look to the neighbors. I mean, I guess it's, it's almost like a Mr. Rogers kind of thing, uh, looking for the helpers, but uh, you know, uh, I remember ice, the, the ice storm. I'm sure you were in Oklahoma for that, that bad ice storm. What was that? 2007? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in there. Yeah. You know, all of our neighbors, we were lucky in Norman. We had really good neighbors anyway, but you know, the next day we were at our one neighbors who had, uh, they had ground coffee. We had hot water. We got together and, you know, we're able to <laughs> have yeah. some, you know, so there was that kind of sharing that was happening. People yeah. were you know, sharing the, um, extension cords across streets, which of course drove the first responders crazy. But, you know, there was all these connections and and when people were cleaning up, you know, our neighbor next to us, I still remember um, all of a sudden looking out the window and there he was with his chainsaw uh, taking care of some of the fallen branches in our roads. And I I didn't have a chainsaw and he took care of that. And that's, you know, so, I mean, I agree with you completely, but I, and I think, I think that whole individualism thing is something that, I mean, cause I mean, you know, this growing up Southern Baptist and um, yeah. I, I think even though the message of the faith is not really about individualism, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I mean, that, that there's, there is, I mean, I was always, I mean, just the nature of kind of a communal church. I mean, that is a community kind of experience that is supposed to be a part of this. And yet in America, without doubt, I think, that experience, and it's not just to pick on people of the Christian faith, I mean, because that's an American belief, you know, is that individualism triumphs so much, even in that, you know, and that's, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think so broadly, even well beyond any kind of religious discussion, that discussion about individualism and what that means and what its yeah, limits are, you know. yeah. Yeah, sometimes I wonder if, um, you know, individualism hasn't become a cultural myth, um, you know, like, like Bunyan's blue ox, you know, I mean, I mean, because, because the realities are, nobody made it alone. Right. 
Right. So, so even, you know, from history from, you know, you, here you are, you, you got the goods. Um, there is no account of an individual like doing all the things we say someone does. There, there may be some anecdotal evidence where, you know, a particular person emerges in a crisis as someone who, who leverages his skills and talents for the community, but he never ends up only by himself and right. he never does it for just himself. So, you know, it's a, it, it's a, it, to me, it just, it's a, it's just a cultural myth. There, there, there is, there's not really anything. And, and, and it's just someone latched on to, you know, rugged individualism as, you know, this, this is, you know, this is American, this is kind of us. And you like, the truth of the matter is that's just not true. Yeah. That, that's, that, there's no truth to that. There's no, there's no lived reality for that. And, um, yeah, no, it's, and it's, and by the way, I can tell you where, where at least where part of that started. And this is a great book for you to put on your list. Gordon Woods, the, the Americanization of Benjamin Franklin. It's a really nice little book. Uh, Wood is one of the preeminent revolutionary scholars, yeah, early national period. And um, in the in the 18th and 17th century America, uh, you didn't brag about coming from poverty. If you grew up in poverty and had to work for a living, that was actually something that was shameful. And so the, the elite were the elite because they didn't have to do that. Um, and Franklin becomes, and I, I'll, I'm going to have to review the book myself to figure out how Wood kind of explains, but, but Franklin grows up poor and becomes the archetype of the self-made man. And yet all the way through this, he, he, he clearly connects how much Franklin was, he was clearly smart, who worked very hard, all those things, but he had benefits. He had benefactors. He had access to things, you know, all that, which is exactly what you're saying. Is it my late father-in-law was a big argument, you know, it was like that pulled up and if you looked at his past, he, you know, he went to a couple of state funded schools. He, he got government grants that, in terms of his employment. And again, no one would ever question that my father-in-law worked hard to a fault. He absolutely worked hard, but he also had help along the way. But that myth is just so deeply embedded in there that. Yeah. Yeah, it is hard to get past. Yeah, it is. And I, and I think, you know, if, if, if we were going to kind of draw, uh, you know, this little bit of time to an end, I think, I think that may be one thing that history does for us. One thing that your guild and, and, and if people will pay attention to folks like you and, and a Kevin Cruz and, and, and several others who are kind of pretty good at twi- getting some things out on Twitter, for instance, would, would be just that, that we, we need to come to terms with our myths. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and we also need to recognize that, that myths aren't always bad. Right. We just need to know which ones they are. Myths, myths are just, you know, uh, are, are, are a means to carry a story. Yeah. Sometimes, though, we've so literalized the myth that we're forgetting the story that the myth is carrying. And, that's, and so that's Joseph Campbell, right? I mean, yeah, they, yeah. yeah. Saying that you guys so caught up in the literal, that was his criticism of, of kind of a literal taking of any kind of scripture was mm-hmm. so fixated on the literal kind of element of that story that you miss the meaning of the, of mm-hmm. the, of the story itself, of the myth. Yeah. And I, th- and I think I, that's why the, the moments like this actually help broaden the scope of where that, beca- where that's experienced or encountered, you know, where, where we can, we, we can acknowledge there's some really good myths. I mean, there's some good myths out there that carry the story, but we've, 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 you know, I don't know if we've lost imagination or if we've, I, I, you, you don't know what it is. It's, you know, undercut the the power of those particular 
uh, American myths, if you will, to lead us to the place where we've so idolized them that they've become so particular that this is, and and, and now we're legalistic. This is how it's got to happen. Well, nobody does it that way. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, nobody, nobody, for example, is arguing over whether there was an actual Pandora's box. Exactly. Exactly. That story means, you know, Yes. Um, yes. It has value, and we use it all the time, even if we yes. never write the myths. We know the meaning, and we're exactly. you know. Exactly. Exactly. Well, look, this has been fun, man. We, Me too. We, we we may have to we may have to do this a time or two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. Well, so, thank you, and uh, and I'll follow up with you too on some of the specifics as I'm, you know, toying with maybe doing a little of this myself, you know, and yeah. just because yeah. it might be a way to talk to smart people, which, you know, is, uh, that can be, and we need to do that and, or talk to funny people or talk to great people. Sometimes they're all the same, you know, that's exactly, exactly, exactly. It's always, I want to thank you for listening to Pathological and hopefully along the way you have found some things that have been uh, helpful, uh, encouraging, thought provoking, challenging even, and maybe to hear, uh, different perspectives. There's absolutely nothing wrong with engaging in conversation. So we hope to provide those sorts of things for you here as we interview uh, guests and friends and authors and practitioners. And uh, we want to thank Brad Rayleigh for coming on and uh, doing just that. And I hope, hope indeed, he fires up his own podcast. It sounds like it would be fascinating and intriguing to me. And maybe to you. We'll keep you posted. So... Until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological. Peace.